So we weren't actually building for scale. We were building to have a very small team with a very scalable platform. So not scale of the organization, but scale of the platform. It was very naive. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was very idealistic. You know, as soon as you start to sell to a developer in an organization who has to sign up a budget, you're going to go through a procurement process. And even though the developer is the person who's buying the technology, you know, there's other people with the budgets and you need salespeople. And then you need people on support because developers have problems and they want to speak to a human being. And then we need to look after customers. So we need customer success people. And so it's all of the things that we thought we were designing to avoid, you know, very quickly came back into the organization. I am Matthew Reardon. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Ably Realtime. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Spent six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the backhand. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. I was proud of her team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Matthew O'Reardon is bringing real-time to your experience through infrastructure that works at any scale. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-source edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Matthew O'Reardon is originally from South Africa. He left school and sort of fell into engineering because he just loved it. In fact, the craft brought him to the UK where he saw more opportunity. Outside of tech, he likes adrenaline sports. He was a competitive skydiver. He pointed out that it's a great way to clear your head because you can't think about anything else when you're skydiving. Matt unearthed interesting things as he was building prototype after prototype to solve real-time experiences. He wanted to build a new generation of real-time communication developer tools that provide collaboration opportunity and that just work. This is the creation story of Ably. We are a real-time experience platform. What that means is we provide APIs that power live and collaborative experiences. Right now we do that for hundreds of millions of devices and we deliver features like live chat, food ordering, delivery tracking, document collaboration, multiplayer games, commentary, sports events, and really anything where you're seeing live data or you're collaborating with other users, we provide APIs to help make that happen. And so our customers are developers. We give them the APIs to kind of build these features. And that's that's what we do as a business. You know, we identified a common problem that developers have and how they deliver these experiences and, and made it easy for them to do that. 
the first things I started playing around with on the web. Back then, there was it was very limited what you could do with the web. You could bring some interactivity into applications using Java back then. So Java was one of the first things you can bed to kind of create these richer applications. And that always fascinated me, like because you could do more than just a static web page. Then there were technologies like Flash that came about. And I always kind of had this interest of how do you turn static loading a web page into things that people can interact with? But I never I never dived into it in terms of a business. I started looking at various different business ideas. And they were really quite diverse. I mean, from a dating application in the B2C space to a backlog management tool in the B2B space, really just playing around with things. And what I found was that everything I was building, my belief, my hypothesis was the more you can make it collaborative or shared, you know, share the experience with other people, the more impact it would have. And, you know, and again, we've seen this, you know, more recently with Figma being acquired by Adobe for 20 billion because, you know, compared to Adobe's products was quite immature, but it was collaborative first. And that was the thing that kind of scared Adobe into having to actually even acquire them. But what I found was in all these prototypes I was building, I kept solving the same problem over and over again. And, and there's two things I unearthed. One was, you know, the first generation of real-time experiences on the web goes all the way back to maybe Gmail. So Gmail is probably the first application you would have noticed that it was the first app where you suddenly didn't need to refer keep refreshing your page to kind of find out when an email arrived. There wasn't really a sophisticated way of delivering real-time experiences, but the hacked web protocols, all the products that were out there, all these open source products, and even some cloud products that helped you do this, were really building on that first generation idea. Let's hack some web protocols to deliver notifications. You know, the things that I was working on was more like Google Docs, right? If you're editing a document together and, you know, I make a change and the change doesn't isn't replicated in your document, then fundamentally we diverge, right? We start to have a problem that you can't converge them back again and we're editing different documents. And so, you know, what I focused on was, no, let's let's do the second generation, right? Let's give developers a transport layer and a, and a service that they could build any real-time experience on and just know that it works, right? And, you know, especially for developers, they understand this. It's got to be very binary. Um, it's got to either work or not work, but nothing in between. And, you know, we identified really four things, which is it needs to be low latency. Real-time experiences, once things go beyond 100 milliseconds, if you had two things side by side, you would start to perceive that latency. So you have to keep things under 100 milliseconds. So performance of the system matters. And that led us into some pretty complex problems, which is you can't defy the laws of physics. The, the time it takes light to travel from Australia to the US is more than 100 milliseconds. So you can't have the service in a single region. It's got to be globally distributed. You've got to have infrastructure all over. And I mean, of course, we built edge infrastructure, which now is, you know, everything, everyone's, I suppose, a bit more trendy that everyone's kind of delivering edge services. But at the time, that was just necessary for us to kind of deliver that low latency. And the next thing was really just integrity. So kind of going back to that idea of it needs to work or fail completely, but nothing in between. And then the next two things are really about, you know, availability of the system and and dependability of the system. And, and I think the thing that we identified was that if you're watching a live football match, and you're getting live scores sent to you. You know, if, if the scores stop working for some reason, because the real-time system that's powering it is not working, your experience is seriously undermined because you think it's working. You don't know that it's not working because you're not, there's no way of knowing that the real-time stream of data is, is no longer happening. So it really undermines the experience. Whereas if you didn't add any real-time feature and you expected people to refresh the page every five seconds, which a lot of, <laughs> a lot of live sites still do that. They just kind of say, just keep refreshing the page. In some ways, that's a better experience because it works, right? And you know what you're dealing with. And so our belief was that if you deliver real time and it's not dependable and it doesn't always work, 
you actually risk by adding these real-time features to make the experience better, you risk making the experience even worse than not offering the real-time features. So that's kind of how we came about building Ably, which was give developers you know, infrastructure and APIs to build these experiences so they don't have to solve all these hard problems. Let's dive into the MVP, so that first version of the product you built. How long did it take to build, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? We are probably the worst example of what a lean startup should be. You know, it's it's kind of with hindsight, I think we made the right decisions, but it, it would be hard to recommend anyone else follow the similar path. You know, when we came into the market, there were other solutions, as I was saying. There were other real-time solutions that existed. They didn't kind of meet those needs of those four pillars I was talking about, that sort of integrity, dependability, latency, and all of those sort of things. So, you know, I met my co-founder, Paddy, and, you know, with him, we realized that we needed to build something that was novel, something unique, something that was true innovation that allowed us to build this distributed system. And, you know, distributed systems are hard. Like, there's, there's not many companies, a lot of companies use distributed systems, but not many companies design distributed systems. I think back to my deck. I think when I met my co-founder, I had a deck to kind of sell him in on the idea. And I'd suggested we would get something to market in nine months. It took us three years. You know, it was stressful in that, you know, when are we ever going to launch, right? But, you know, we had this kind of vision of, well, we need to be different. We need to differentiate from the market. We need to actually deliver enduring innovation. And I kind of think about it like railway, right? I mean, you can't launch railway infrastructure half-baked. You have to kind of do it properly. We had to build the underlying infrastructure that really worked. Otherwise, we had no differentiation in the market. But it was very painful, really underestimating how complex this would be. The flip side is, it was incredibly fun. <laughs> like, solving novel hard problems with my co-founder and a few other people in the team, every day was an interesting challenge. It was like, it wasn't we were doing something that had been done before. Every time it was, it might be an academic paper on how to solve the problem, but... But there was no playbook on how to apply that academic paper on how to solve that problem, you know, internally. And then when we finally launched, what we discovered was that, to our dismay, a lot of developers, although they recognized we had built better tech, still stuck with what they they used because it was convenient or it was familiar. So we were like, wow, that's not what we expected. We really thought better tech that developers would understand and measurably be able to see would they would choose the better tech. But we kind of missed the point, and it's also why we've been succeeding, is that as the criticality of what we provide increases, and criticality comes in, you know, if you're a large organization like HubSpot, you've got hundreds of thousands of people concurrently using your product. If you're going to bake in something like Ably, you are depending on Ably. If Ably goes down, a core part of your product stops working. So that's one kind of criticality. Then there's other companies who, like Australia Open, where, you know, millions of fans arrive within minutes, and they need to get live updates. It's quite a hard problem to solve. And so what we found was that engineers who realized that they needed to do things that are critical or high scale or just an integral part of their stack, they valued what we did. And they were the ones who kind of made the more informed decisions around which tech to integrate in. Because once you're integrated, you stay, you know, stay integrated. And, you know, we've basically had an incredible track record of companies integrating us and moving on. And it is what has set us up to to have a business that is differentiated. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero-trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. 
The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. So you've got your MVP, you've built it, you said it took three years and, and it's working, right? You're, you're differentiating yourself. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I think to wrap that in a box a little bit, what I'm looking for is how you built your roadmap and how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Ably. We were fortunate in some ways. Firstly, because there were first generation products out there, we didn't need to discover what features customers needed. We needed to work out how we could do that better than our competitors. So we were really just looking at what feature sets they had and and building around that. So we didn't have to do much customer validation. Again, I wouldn't advocate doing that, but it, it was what we were doing. We're saying there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the problem they're trying to solve. It's just not fit for purpose. So we're just going to do that better. So that helped us a lot in the early days because we were really just designing around what other people had done and the problems they had solved. And, you know, when you think about it, the problems they had solved are because customers have told them they need to solve this problem and therefore they've built APIs to solve those problems. It's based on on actual customer need, really, when it comes down to it. I think what then happened is two things happened in the business. We we responded to customer insight. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're, we feel very strongly that you should not ask your customer what API you should build. <laughs> you know, if we constantly respond to every customer request about modifying the API, we'll get a, you know, we'll end up with a real Frankenstein of APIs. I suppose the most drive we get from expanding the APIs is when we're on calls with customers and you see them doing something and you're like, oh, wow, that's crazy. I didn't think you would solve the problem in that way. And there's a lot of that, just talking to customers and seeing what they're doing. The other one, which I think we failed at at the beginning, the other side of it was a bit more visionary, right? Where you think, where's the industry going and what do we need to build next? And so we did build a product that was about how companies can exchange real-time data and share real-time data with each other. So if you go on now, you you can consume crypto prices and, and things like that through our platform. We provide that sort of data for free. And our idea was that, you know, organizations increasingly will need to share data. And that is true. Like that, that statement is correct. <laughs> but the way we went about it was wrong. I think we trusted a bit too much. And well, we're developers. We know what developers need. We know there's a problem there. We validated the problem. But we didn't actually get customers engaged. And well, what does the product look like? We had no product people in the organization then. Right? We had no 
product function. You know, now we have discipline around how we validate things and how you look at the market size and talk to customers and validate APIs before you release them. And so it's a completely different beast where we are today. But, you know, in the early days, it was a lot of instinct looking at what problems people are solving and then this big bet on the vision of where the future is going to go that we just really didn't validate. Okay, so I'm interested about team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I think it's it's changed a lot. I mean, in the early days, it was almost entirely an engineering business, right? So everyone was a software engineer. I remember doing a lot of the recruitment myself on the basis of, let's go find people in the community who are solving hard systems level problems and approach them because at Ably, you can do that for a living, right? You know, you'd find often someone works at some organization and on the side, they've got a side project and something that interests them in the distributed system space. You know, we, we are very unique in that we are genuinely building distributed systems that operate at internet scale, but we're not an internet scale business. We're not a Google, we're not that. So you kind of get to work in a small organization, but get to work on very big, hard problems. And, you know, if you go to a Google, you probably work on one tiny piece of the algorithm, whereas on Ably, you'd work on a much broader set. So in the early days, it was very much about finding people who shared a common interest around solving these hard problems. And then, of course, the organization starts to scale, right? And it's not, it can't all just be engineers. You know, I think in the early days, we were quite cash-strapped. So we sort of brought on quite a lot of junior people that we mentored and helped, you know, help them along. You know, we've got some people still in the organization. You know, our first salesperson who joined, he's now an absolute superstar salesperson, you know, who joined with no experience of tech even. And, you know, we brought them through that journey. But, you know, once we did our Series B funding round, I think the way we approached hiring has changed dramatically. It's not really so much organic hiring anymore. You really have to be more structured and think about it. So, you know, we hire around things like sort of values internally. We really do try and live and breathe them. They're not something that lives on the wall. And, you know, I mean, just to give you a sort of sense of them, we've got things like bias for action. So, you know, what does that mean? It's like, you know, don't get paralyzed by analysis. Like, take action. Like, take thoughtful action, but take action. You know, bold creativity wins are people who kind of have that, who are brave and able to make decisions. You know, we made that part of our hiring process. And, and I think it really helps, right? It's like getting people who, you know, finding people who are going to survive in a startup environment. I think the things that we found is actually the values we have internally. And there are some other characteristics that also tell you a person is going to be right. And, you know, what we found is there's this sort of self-starter entrepreneurial type mindset that we find people that ably succeed more if they do that if they can think about the tech but also think about customer need and driving an outcome you know a lot of developers kind of don't really want to embrace i mean i'm saying a negative way they you know they're like yeah i know i'm building stuff other people but i just kind of want to write the best software i can and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, in a small organization, as we ship more products, like we have to be shipping things that, you know, customers are going to use. And what's beautiful about Ably is that we're developers building software for developers. So we can't have, you know, we, we have that empathy. We understand what developers need. We know what developers like. And that's amazing because a lot of organizations, you get developers building things. You know, you go work at Google and really you're working on an advertising company, right? And you're probably not that passionate about software for an advertising company, but you are passionate about the, the main problem. Whereas at Ably, you're building software for other developers to build cool, cool stuff. So yeah, so we try and look for that sort of entrepreneurial type spirit in people and generally curiosity, right? Curiosity in the tech goes a long way, right? Because then the thing I enjoy most is having discussions about how we're going to solve a problem, how we're going to build the next tech feature. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. 
If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, Cast AI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vassell edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite and a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for CodeStory listeners. Head over to terso.tech CodeStory and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O dot tech slash CodeStory. Terso. Welcome to the Data Edge. This will be interesting. Given given your focus on real-time experience and how much attention you put into the MVP, I'm really curious about how you approached scalability in the early days. So was this built to scale efficiently from that first MVP from day one, or have you been fighting this as you grow in any sort of capacity or any sort of area? You know, when we built Ably... I do laugh because I look again. I, I was thinking back to the deck before this call. The original deck, I had said to Paddy, my co founder, that we're developers. We know developers don't want to talk to other developers. So let's build a business that never really requires us to hire many people. And, you know, we'll be completely self service and develop. And as long as we create great documentation, great APIs, and the whole product, then we won't need a big team. So we weren't actually building for scale. We were building to have a very small team with a very scalable platform. <laughs> so not scale of the organization, but scale of the platform. And of course, it was very naive. I mean, you, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was very idealistic, but it was also kind of naive in that, you know, as soon as you start to sell to a developer in an organization who has to sign up a budget, you're going to go through a procurement process. And even though the developer is the person who's buying the technology, you know, there's other people with the budgets and you need salespeople, right? And so, and then you need people on support because developers have problems and they want to speak to a human being. And then we need to look after customers. So we need customer success people. And so it's all of the things that we thought we were designing to avoid, you know, very quickly came back into the organization. But, you know, we did build something which was, you know, at the time, PLG was certainly not as much of a buzzword, you know, product-led growth and even dev first as an organization. But that's what we were doing. We were building a product-led growth business that was developer first. And now, you know, there's a whole category of businesses like us. I remember the moment we signed the term sheet and it just kind of hit me. I mean, it really just hit me that I'm like, I have to change modes as a CEO. I have to completely rethink what I do because now we need to scale an organization of people (laughs) as opposed to scaling a platform, right? And it used to always be for me, the thing that I would always say was, you know, the things that would keep me up prior to series B was product, 
build the best product, then worry about the people, and then worry about the pounds. So the PPP, but obviously in the US would be dollars. And literally the day I signed a term sheet, I'm like, no, no, that's completely wrong. It's people first. It's just people, then it's product, and then it's revenue. Now we are more strategic around how we're designing for scale. I think what we did do is we over-rotated a bit on preparing for scale. Take as an example, you know, we might think, well, we're going to need this new function that we didn't have before. So we'll hire three or four people into that. That was a mistake because you kind of first have to learn what to do before you scale it. And so we did that. We did a bit of that where we sort of made teams a little bigger than they needed to be. And that actually then becomes now you're trying to manage a team of people and give them clarity on what to do. As opposed to if you put one person in to say, here's a new thing we need to do, go figure out how to do it. They know that their job is to go figure out how to do it. And then we learn from that and then we start to repeat it. So we did kind of, you know, we definitely kind of over-rotated a bit, but, you know, I'm afraid a year and a half in the market, that's kind of, you know, a lot of what the industry did, right? I mean, the whole industry is sort of stripping back down again, and I would say becoming just more capital efficient. I'm thinking more about how do I put the right people into the exec team? How do I give them direction? How do they scale their teams? What do they need? As opposed to how do we build the best product? So as you step out on the balcony, and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? You know, this is my third business. And I think the thing that I'm really just makes me happy when I sort of wake up in the morning is thinking that we're reaching almost a half a billion people a month now. You know, that's like 10% of the world who have access to the internet are possibly touching our service. And I'm going to say that that metric is with a slight pinch of salt because it measures devices, not people. So it's not quite that accurate, but it's a it's it's a big number that's what it's all about for me it's like i enjoy writing we did it because we love the tech and now what we're doing is our tech is having an impact and it's it's improving people's lives and i know i'm not trying to make out like we're altruistic and philanthropic in that regard but actually you want to feel like you're having an impact and you and and i i think we can i think that's the thing that 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 you know makes me happy and excited and i'm most proud of Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Probably looking back, you know, the biggest sort of mistake that we've made and we, you know, really kind of addressed very quickly at the moment is when we did our Series B funding, there was a lot of excitement about how quickly we can grow. And it wasn't just us. It was the whole market. And we had tremendous growth at the time. So it felt like, yes, I mean, you know, more money means we can grow even faster. We started off as a developer-first organization. That was the DNA of our business. You know, we believe that developers will find our product because they have a problem. We deal with them with empathy. We are honest and authentic with them. And they will evaluate the product and choose us because we're the best product. And that's how we're going to win because we create a great developer experience. And then when we got our funding round, we started to think, hold on, like maybe we need to accelerate by instead of kind of doubling down on that route, let's create a second motion, right? So we were PLG up until that point, And we also then created a sales led motion. And we try to run these two side by side. There were actually two problems with this. One is our developer audience is not really that compatible with sales-led approaches. They they don't want to be sold to, they want to buy. And they're happy to talk to salespeople, but when they're ready to buy, not when we go out to them. So it was kind of incompatible anyway, And but that's fine because that was meant to be the experiment of can we build a sales function that goes and finds business rather than waiting for marketing and developers to find us. That experiment, I still back and, and say we should have done. What we missed was that it created conflict in the organization of if someone signs up, do you 
try and sell to them or do you try and take them through a developer motion of you know making them successful at building their app you had people with different interests within the organization because we had two different motions and and i think the moment i realized that there was really a fundamental problem was when i i heard a comment in one of our all staff meetings where they said the reason we lost the customer was because the customer went to our self service product and signed up and used it directly and I'm like hold on a minute this that's a win that's that's just a different avenue of how you buy the product right you come in and you buy it yourself or you go through a sales motion and so that was the that was the mistake it was not that we tried a new motion of course we could do that it was that it actually created misalignments in the organization no one knew should we be selling hard or should we be trying to make customers succeed and quite frankly it's always make customers succeed when it comes to developers let them see the value in the product and everything else follows it all flows very very well and it's what we built the business on this will be interesting, always interesting and fun to ask this question. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? No one's going to Auth0 because you need to add a login box to your web page, right? You can do that. That's easy. You're going to Auth0 because you know that they are experts in identity and authentication. You know that they will think of everything that you will need to do in your sort of identity and authentication systems way before you do. And you know that they sort of going to really be experts in the space so that you can trust them and you can get on with building your own application. And so really, what have they done? They, they've kind of given you this complete solution for identi- you know, identity and authentication. And I think that's, that's kind of how I see Ably is that, you know, the future is that you come to Ably to solve one problem. I mean, so the kind of taking the Auth0 example, people might go to Auth0 because they think, yeah, I need to do two-factor authentication. I don't quite know how to do it. But then you buy into the fact that it's a complete platform to solve that problem. And I and for us, real-time experiences is what we are seeing as a sort of maturity curve that organizations are adopting. You know, I think right now, if you think about consumers, people just expect everything now to be in real time. It's actually technically quite hard to do that. Like consumers think that because you are using Uber and you see your driver driving around and you're using your chat apps and you're using kind of social media and it's all live and updated. And so there's an expectation now that everything is just live and and up to date. And what we see probably quite uniquely that other people don't see is that organizations typically come for one thing. They're thinking, oh, right, our customers are expecting us to have live chat. So we need to add chat. And for us, it's like you dip your toe in real time and your, your customers are going to expect more. Then they're going to go, well, I want to chat, but I also want to collaborate with my other users. And when I'm chatting to you, you just, you just reverse that transaction, but I'm not seeing it come up live in my banking app. So why is that not happening? It's a transition from the sort of static um, applications to these real-time collaborative applications. And our belief is, you know, you'll come for one thing and we're a complete platform for the whole real-time experience. And that's the direction we're taking, right? Which is, and we don't necessarily have to have every feature, but what we need to be is a credible platform that enables you as a developer to kind of help your organization through that journey of what comes next and having a set of APIs to do that. And that's, that's really the direction we're headed. Okay, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? There are three things I would say. The first one for me is I genuinely did not start Ably or e-consultancy in my previous business or the other business. I didn't start them because I did it to make money. I did it because I was doing something I was really interested in doing. Um, so the real-time space fascinated me. I enjoyed building the tech. 
you know, those three years with Patty when we started the business was just incredible. And so I think if you have the genuine interest in the domain, then everything else becomes easy because you have the passion. You know, I think a lot of people are trying to, it's, it's great. They've got the spirit of, I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to find something and build a business. But I think you have to be careful to make sure you build a business that's something you care about, not something that you see as an opportunity. And so I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is you need to find the right co-founders. I spend more time with my co-founder than, <laughs> than you know, most people. And I wouldn't want to do it alone. I did run one business alone. I wouldn't want to do it alone again. I think it's great having co-founders. You can bounce ideas off different perspectives. You know, we're so comfortable with each other now that we can have quite difficult conversations that I think other people would almost feel uncomfortable being in a room with the conversations we're having. But we're not because they just, you know, we're so familiar with each other and understand. And so that just allows us to really sort of make progress and depend on each other. So, and I, you know, I need that other perspective and he needs my perspective, I'm sure. The other one that I think I would recommend is you really have to choose your investors wisely, less your small investors. You know, small investors you do not have to deal with every day, but your large investors will probably have a position on your board and you want to know that you like them and you you trust them and they have your interests at heart. You know, I think we've been very lucky. I, I respect, I really respect all of our investors. I, I respect the input they give us. They all come from very different perspectives. You know, some are more technical, some are sort of more, I suppose, investors and, and they look at the, you know, so they're coming with different approaches, but it's, it's, it's great. I mean, I can't tell you how many board meetings I've been in where... <laughs> You know, they kind of say something that makes me step back and go, wow, okay, I didn't think of it like that. And and you need that, but you need people that you get on with and, and you can trust. So, you know, you got to choose your investors, you got to choose your co-founders correctly, and you got to choose something that you're genuinely interested in. And then if those three things come together, you're going to enjoy what you do every day. And that's that makes it all worth it. Right? So um, I'd say those are the three things. Uh, that's fantastic. Well, Matt, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Abley. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Saving money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.